Howdy and welcome to this is new. Oh no, that was bad. I didn't even get the H out. Ream, we had one job. <laughs> this is oh, why. No. This is why we don't do it live. It'd be a disaster. Alrighty, let's just take <laughs> let's just take ten seconds of silence and then you start us back up when you're ready, man. Jack, what are you gonna do if I don't cut this out? <laughs> I mean. You should probably cut it out, right? <laughs> <laughs> it's not. It's not oh, a. It doesn't shine the best light on us. Okay. All right. All right. Okay. Okay. All right. I'm going silent. Howdy and welcome to this is news. I'm Reem, joined as always by Jack. Jack, how are you today? I'm doing well. How are you? Doing great, Jack. Let's dive right in because it's been a big week. First, the House and Senate have agreed to more funding for the Paycheck Protection Program and what is part of the continued relief provided by the federal government for the COVID-19 outbreak. Jack, what do you take of this new relief measures? Well, really what we see is like anything politically, we're uh, splitting along partisan grounds when it comes to this relief packages. And there's really two groups who are causing some issues and whose stances aren't really... uh, like aren't really correct when it comes to this one on the conservative side and one on the uh, liberal side on the conservative side you have the more libertarian leaning people who are declaring that we should be voting this stimulus down like conservatives generally vote every stimulus down and that this is unacceptable and though these measures definitely need to be temporary and we'll get to that and while their intentions are good they are really misplaced when it comes to this usually when the federal government gets involved uh, with the free market it's intrusive it does nothing good and it causes more or causes more harm than good and they would be correct to say that we need to be opposing them but this is a very unique circumstance this is historical what we're watching never before in the history of the united states has the government informed every single business that they are forbidden from operating, that they have to be closed, and that they are not allowed to do all the things necessary to make a profit. And when the government is the one that's directly causing the harm that's making your business fail, it is incumbent on the government to provide the resources necessary to keep your business afloat. So while normally this would be intrusive and unacceptable, it is okay for the government to provide as they're the reason your business is failing in the first place. Now, What we do need to be wary of is this is getting very expensive. I mean, we passed before the bill you referenced, we passed a $2 trillion stimulus package, which was by far the most expensive in American history. And it's just going to keep getting bigger and bigger if we continue down that road. And what we see on the liberal side is that there's a lot of people, Bernie Sanders, for for example, who just published an article in the New York Times arguing for this, is that we should make these changes permanent and that we should affect or change the culture of the United States, not just in crisis mode, but even when there is COVID-19 in our day-to-day lives. And this is just unsustainable and unacceptable. And you can't really use a crisis to push down, uh, to uh, shove your agenda down the throat of the American people. Yeah, let me, let me jump in on both of those points and kind of elaborate a bit from where I'm coming from. So let me start the more progressive view. Um, there's a quote, and I can't remember who said it. I want to say it was a Democratic governor, um, but don't quote me on that. But basically, never let a crisis go to waste. Um, yeah, I think as we saw with the first version of the 
phase three coronavirus stimulus package, we definitely saw the Democratic Party led by Nancy Pelosi attempting to use this as a moment to kind of press for a lot of Democratic bucket list items. Uh, So these things that they've been pushing for before the pandemic and are just using the pandemic as an excuse to get them enacted into law permanently. Um, And if if the thing you're advocating for during the pandemic is the same thing you're advocating for outside of pandemics, that's a sign of one of two things. One, the pandemic is reinforcing your prior views or priors. And two, or, or alternatively, the second thing is that what you were advocating for, from my opinion, opinion would be something that government probably shouldn't be doing if it's something along the lines of expanded corporate welfare. Um, Because moving on to what conservatives are saying, um, where some of them are saying that the government's doing too much, the way I look at it is like this. Normally, I want some government regulation in the free market to ensure a fair and competitive market that allows all participants to have an equal playing field. But in this case, what's occurred is small businesses are being particularly hit hard, and so the playing field has become unequal. And so in times like it has become unequal. So in times like this, where there's widespread market failure, I'm largely okay with government intervention of this scale. Mm-hmm. Well, so, I would add I would add not just widespread failure, but government-caused failure. I mean, this is because of the stay-at-home orders and because of government intervention. Right, and this isn't this isn't to disparage those. Those are the right calls. Social distancing needs to right. happen in order to maintain the capacity of our hospitals to ensure they don't get overrun and continue to function. But at some point, it's still just market failure. And when markets collapse, the government needs to step in to help ensure that those markets can continue to exist. Um, So Jack, what are some of the programs that you're specifically thinking are ones that we're probably going to see attempted to make permanent um, and that we're going to, we as in the kind of conservative libertarian movement are going to really have to be vigilant about ensuring that they don't become well, really, uh, it's a wide and diverse variety, and a lot of it's got nothing to do with COVID. You saw this uh, during the original fight over this $2.2 trillion stimulus package. Uh, the House refused to vote on the Senate one for many days after the Senate one passed 96 to 0. And the Wall Street Journal, I believe it was, or maybe it was the Washington Times, one of those two, they went through Pelosi's proposed bill to see all the things on her bucket list, and really none of it had to do with COVID, it was just a left-wing wish list. And it included things uh, ranging from a uh, salary increase for the House of Representatives, of course, to uh, requiring uh, diversity reports for uh, corporations who were receiving funding and for extra funding into global warming and things like that. So it really had nothing to do with COVID. So I would say that there's not too much of a difference of what we're going to have to be wary of concerning these COVID programs versus just in an everyday life. What we're seeing is the AOCs and Bernie Sanders of the Democratic Party are just pushing what they normally push. They're just using COVID to do it. So it's going to be universal health care. They're trying to connect 
racial disparities in healthcare to the COVID impact and saying that the only solution is socialized healthcare. Uh, global warming, they're somehow connecting this to that. Uh, that's what AOC has been uh, recently talking about. And then just uh, the, our relationship between the free market and the government. Bernie Sanders has been saying that this proves that capitalism has failed and that we need huge government safety nets and government intervention in the economy, which is what he always said, but now they're just using COVID as an excuse. So I don't really think it changes much. It's just uh, we're going to have to be more vigilant because we have to temporarily allow it. And there's always the worry with government programs and emergencies that they stick around even after the emergency is long gone. Right. Before I jump in specifically on the climate change issues being pushed by people like Representative Ocasio-Cortez, I just want to note that all of those things are things that these people have been advocating for before the coronavirus. And so it's just a, it's almost a prime example of them using a virus to simply confirm their priors on this issue, um, exactly on those issues. But let me let me talk a bit about the climate change things we've been seeing during this pandemic. And don't get me wrong, climate change is a problem that needs to be addressed. Yes, I want to make is, that clear. It is a real thing, unlike what uh, our president would let you know. Right, I want to make that clear. Like. We think climate change needs to be fixed. We don't think the Green New Deal is how we do it. And also, people have been noting that we've hit the Paris Climate Accord emissions targets through shutting down the entire economy, which has led to mass unemployment. And so that's what it takes to achieve those climate regulations. It makes you question, were those regulations ever really that realistic to begin with? And did anyone actually intend to implement them if in order to to fully implement them, it would have apparently caused shutting down nearly your entire economy? Exactly. Right. And this will probably be something I talk about a lot on this podcast, but it always is interesting to see these kind of climate change people talking about how we need to stay away from fossil fuels and we need to move over to nuclear and not nuclear to solar power and wind power. And they specifically say they're against nuclear power, which many climate scientists believe is kind of the key to actually solving climate change. And so if you're against nuclear power, like period, we've made nuclear power a lot safer since three mile Island or Chernobyl. If you're against nuclear power, it's not so much that you're looking at climate change realistically, but you're looking at the solution to it as an opportunity to achieve a bucket list of objects instead of an opportunity to realistically change the electricity distribution in America. Right, Reem, you're exactly right. And I would argue that unfortunately, the Republican Party has really done a terrible job when it comes to global warming. And we've given the Democrats a lot of uh, credence and uh, legitimacy where they wouldn't have otherwise have it by completely ignoring the issue. I mean, at least a lot, I think from the voters' perspective, at least they're taking it seriously. It seems like a lot of Republicans just dismiss it as a Chinese hoax or as a one representative did one time through snowballs in the uh, House floor <laughs> declaring that the snowballs proved that global warming wasn't real, not realizing there's a huge difference between weather and climate patterns. 
<laughs> but uh, you are exactly right. Anyone who claims to care about global warming and then immediately dismisses nuclear energy as a reliable resource uh, doesn't actually care about global warming. They're just pushing their agenda using global warming as a uh, 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 disguise for it, just as they're trying to do with COVID. And uh, AOC is definitely one of those people. And that leads us to the uh, current oil crisis, which she is so excited about. Because if there's two things that we didn't need combined, it's a Saudi and Iranian uh, oil war. Yeah, I definitely think that was an interesting geopolitical choice. And we kind of found out that that agreement had fallen through really like when all the shutdowns started happening. Uh, So if there was ever a time to not... If there was ever a time to keep oil prices stable, this would have been it. But instead, the Saudis and Russians had a breakdown in negotiations, and we basically got, all right, well, if you're not going to keep oil production low, then I'm not going to keep oil production low. In fact, I'm going to pump all the oil. And then the other side responded, well, well, if you're going to do that, we're also going to do that, and none of us will get money. So... On May 1st, they are implementing an agreement to cut back oil prices. But on Tuesday, a futures contract expired, and you would have actually gotten paid money to take oil. Um, and, and let me let me do a little bit of explanation on this. No one has space for oil. Like, all the pipelines are full, all the reserves are full, like, nobody has space for the oil, and that's why they were going to pay you money to take it, because when a futures contract expires, you get the oil no matter what. And so, all these people who were going to get it literally didn't have anywhere to put oil, and so they would have paid you to take it because they literally couldn't have it. So, yeah, so... Jack, what do you what do you think some of the political implications of this oil fiasco might be? Well, I think uh, first and foremost, the uh, pandemic is certainly exacerbating it. I mean, uh, the uh, actions by both the Saudis and the Iranians were going to affect the uh, oil market and prices of oil in major ways. But with the stay-at-home orders and with the world basically on lockdown in a way we've never seen it before, uh, there's just not as much of a demand for uh, driving and therefore not or there's not as many people driving so there's not the same demand for oil that normally is and combining a lower demand with a uh, higher supply than expected is not going to uh, be very good in the short term for those companies but uh, the political implications are rather interesting there is going again off of the normal uh, conservative Republican opposition to uh, government interference in industry such as oil, we find that it's rather unique with this in, uh, with this industry because of uh, two reasons. First, considering the pandemic, state governments are already losing a ton of money because no one is shopping right now with everyone staying at home. And that means the state governments aren't getting the sales tax they're used to getting. And many states, such as Texas, also depend on oil. So if they lose oil and they lose the sales tax, they're going to lose a lot of revenue and possibly be unable to pay for many of the obligations the state government should be doing. And because of that, that may justify a little bit of intervention by the government. In fact, uh, Governor Abbott of Texas is working with uh, President Trump 
to figure that out. But there's also national security implications. Oil is a very important resource in war, and uh, it is crucial that the United States have as much independence as possible so that uh, we are not dependent on anyone who would have an agenda contrary to ours on the world stage. Right. So before we go on, um, let me just note a couple things. So while the price for that specific futures contract did go into the negative, the price for a American oil barrel has stayed positive the whole time. It was just that one futures contract because of when it was expiring. Um, so today you cannot go and get paid to take oil. Um, yeah. And on the national security point you made, America is an oil exporter, right? We export more oil than we use. Really, right. I think the concern is for our European allies who do not and have to rely upon oil from uh, the Organization of Petroleum Exporting Countries and Russia. Yes, you're and, completely right. Right. And so I think the U.S. actually ramping up oil production does help those countries source their oil from a country they know has at least the same values of them, if not the same interests. Exactly. And on this whole oil thing, a brief economics lesson, uh, the representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez felt the need to uh, tweet about this crisis, and she uh, almost gleefully talked about how excited she was that uh, all the people in the oil industry were about to lose jobs so that she can implement her new Green Deal. And she discussed that uh, oil prices falling to this low and actually getting paid to take the oil showed that it was a bad time to invest in oil and a great time to invest in alternative industries. And Reem, maybe you could enlighten her as to uh, why that is completely incorrect. Well, okay. Here's the deal. Yes, I agree. The U.S. should try and move away from fossil fuels in the long run by employing things like nuclear power. Yes. However, at a time when many people are making less money than before, having cheap electricity is not a bad thing for people on the ground. And furthermore, if there's ever a time to invest in an industry like, say, the oil industry, the best time to do so would be when the price of oil is astronomically low because those countries aren't making a lot of money. I mean, like, it, it's, it's another example. I, I'm going to keep coming back to this. It's another example of using a current crisis to confirm your priors, no matter how well they actually apply to the situation, right? And, and I just don't understand. Representative Ocasio-Cortez has an economics degree, and she has to be smart to have been elected at such a young age, right? I'm not doubting how smart she is, but... Uh, well, some of us are. Oh, I'll say that. It makes you question the state of higher education in the uh, United States. But to have an economics degree and think that when a commodity price is low is the time to not invest in that commodity seems I'm going to go with the word misguided. Or perhaps she was reading a little too much Marx and too few of Hayek's books. 
Well, we know we know her uh, her favorite economist is uh, oh, was it Milton Keynes? Is what Milton Keynes, yes, Milton Keynes. Okay. The uh, the superhero yeah. who was created when Milton Freeman and Lord Keynes fell into the same nuclear reactor, as as we all know. And of course, uh, she bases all of her programs based on uh, propaganda pictures from failing totalitarian regimes, re communist regimes, such as the Soviet Union or China or North Korea. So it makes sense that she would take a, uh, a crisis that's expanding government power uh, by a precedent we've never seen before and attempts to use it to just confirm her priors. Well, speaking of North Korea, we had an interesting episode Monday night where CNN and NBC News reported that uh, North Korean Premier Kim Jong-un was in grave danger. Um, and we saw reports ranging from Kim Jong-un is brain dead, from which was the initial NBC News headline, Yes. to we don't know whether he's alive or dead from the U.S. intelligence community, to yeah, everything's fine from South Korean intelligence. So at this point, so let me let me let me backtrack a little bit there. Some of this started when Kim Jong Un was not present for any was not shown for any celebrations of North Korea's basically Independence Day, but not um, he wasn't he wasn't present for any of those celebrations, and so that people started thinking then like, oh, is is he okay? Um, and then it came out he might have had surgery, and then we got to grave danger. Um, Yes. At this point, we still haven't seen anything. We haven't heard anything from North Korea. But South Korea, who's generally the authority on these matters, says he is alive based on the fact that there hasn't been any movement to try and seize control by anyone within North Korea. Right. And uh, this is, of course, with the COVID pandemic, it's about the worst time for a power vacuum. So it would honestly be best if he stays in power. I know for a lot of uh, liberty-loving conservatives like me, we uh, get excited at any opportunity for a dictatorship to fall. But the fact is, sometimes, practically, it's better to stick with the evil you know. Libya uh, is probably one of the best examples of this. Libya is not in better shape than it was under Gaddafi. And uh, with China increasing their power and us stuck at home dealing with COVID, we really don't need a nuclear-armed tyranny in the middle of a power struggle. Right, but but for every Libya, there is a Tunisia where a dictatorship has been overthrown and healthy democracy has come about. But yeah, during a global pandemic is not the time to be changing regimes in an authoritarian country. Um, if you took right. our advice and watched the death of Stalin this week, uh, you'll know that... <laughs> Power vacuums create competition. And at this point in time, the last thing that already suffering North Korean people need is ruthless competition between potential successors. And I don't think anyone really knows who those successors would be. No, the uh, name I'm hearing tossed around a lot, well, I don't uh, blank it on her name at the moment, but a Kim Jong-un's sister, who uh, is actually famous for helping run the gulags, so great track record there. She is a very powerful figure, 
And if she was a man, there would be no doubt that she would be primed to take charge. But due to the uh, sexist uh, nature in North Korean culture, it's uh, kind of uncertain if uh, they would allow her to lead. Plus, uh, we have to remember that there would likely be heavy Chinese influence in uh, where North Korea goes from here if Kim Jong-un was dis- uh, disposed. Right. So his sister's name is Kim Yo-jong. Kim jo- uh, yeah. And yeah, that, that's kind of where the question is. So Kim, Kim Jong-un did a impressively savage job of eliminating anyone who could pose a real threat to him being premier because when he when he came to power he was hardly known wasn't really like seen as a natural leader and he pretty immediately killed off anyone who doubted him including his uncle who if his uncle was still alive would probably still be around and yes probably be the if he was still around that was bad if he was still around he would probably be the lead candidate to take over if Kim Jong-un were to die. And some advice for any would-be dictators who are thinking about becoming a dictator of a country, if your legitimacy of your tyranny is being questioned and you need a way to instill fear in your potential rivals, death by artillery is the way to go, as uh, as Kim Jong-un showed. But um, yes, with a uh, crazy madman uh, possibly dead, uh, that is the last thing we need in the world right now and uh it shows honestly sorry what were you gonna say no no no, go ahead it shows honestly how poorly we've handled the north korea situation uh i honestly cannot think of a president who has handled korea well ever since uh president truman's awful decision to go against macarthur's advice in the Korean War, we have basically appeased them to the point where they've become a greater and greater threat. And in becoming more powerful and more dependent on China, there is less and less we can do to handle them. Now we basically have a state who we cannot invade or fight, not only because China will step in, but because they have nuclear powers or nuclear weapons. And it makes uh, situations like this all the more dangerous and limits this, uh, the actions which we can take to mitigate uh, that danger. Right. And I just I just want to make a couple notes. Yeah, no president has handled Korea well, but I think Donald Trump's kind of inconsistency on the matter of North Korea has not helped at all. Um, no, but I I think this I think this new story from Monday is more of a. More of a. Ooh, signal that I know that was long pause for that word, but is is a signal of two things. So the first is that if you're going to be an autocrat, you need to have a clear successor at all times. Yes. Right. Second is that the U.S. intelligence community might not be what it once was. Because if South Korea was coming out and saying he's alive, and the U.S. intelligence community was in a, we don't know if he's alive or dead, that's a failure on the part of the U.S. intelligence community, and quite frankly, a story that I don't think has been covered that much and needs to be a bigger deal. Yes, we uh, we have definitely fallen behind when it comes to that. 
and we should have had much more info right from the start. Although I will say I don't know much about uh, intelligence in North Korea, but I feel like uh, that country would be one of the harder countries to get spies and intelligence from. I'm not disagreeing that it wouldn't be difficult. I'm just saying that they're probably one of the places where I would want to know what's going Like, in the UK, we don't necessarily need to know. I mean, granted, we will, thanks to freedom of the press, but we don't necessarily need to know what the United Kingdom is doing at every single second because right. we're not because they're not a rogue nuclear power. But North Korea has nuclear weapons, is right next to South Korea, who's a major geopolitical ally of the United States, and China, who, while is definitely not an ally, is still a really important economic partner for the United States. And is probably able to fire those nukes all the way to Japan, who is both an ally and major economic power of the United States. And so, like, if there was ever a country I would want to make sure I knew everything that was happening within its borders, it would be North Korea. Yes, I agree. We, we definitely need to do more. And that maybe goes to uh, Trump's odd policy towards North Korea. It's been quite odd. While there are many things to critique about Trump, for the most part, I would say when it comes to dealing with America's enemies on the world stage, he has done a decent job and he has fought against tyranny. He was one of the few world leaders to go out and condemn Fidel Castro's tyranny when he died. He uh, took aggressive action with the Iranians and that appears to have... Uh, worked. He's been aggressive with Syria, and that appears to have worked. And this uh, strategy of peace through strength has been working all over the world. Yet with North Korea, he's uh, instead done a policy of appeasement and trying to have a great relationship with a uh, vicious dictator who executes people with artillery. And it's really just strengthened North Korea, and it's possibly made it where the U.S. has uh, used less intelligence and military power than it should have. And it's put us in a situation where we don't know what to do, we don't know what's going on, and we can't act as quickly as we would have been able to if he had been, uh, if he had had the attitude he had had with Iran or Syria. I mean, maybe I'm asking for too much, but I don't necessarily want our president to have as good a relationship with the dictator of North Korea as Dennis Rodman does. Yes. And uh, not only that, he referred to uh, his relationship with uh, Kim Jong-un as the special relationship that in diplomatic terms is usually uh, reserved between the uh, United States and Great Britain. Right. It, uh, it is never a good thing when uh, the American flag is side by side with a, a tyrant's flag. I mean, imagine if uh, FDR shook hands with uh, Adolf Hitler with the Nazi flag right by ours talking about what a great relationship they have. The North Korean regime, while they are not as large scale as the Nazi, uh, the Nazis were, they are just as evil in their nature. In some ways, I'm shocked we haven't heard Trump come out from one of those meetings with Kim Jong-un and declare that he has secured peace in our time. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Although he has made fun of Kim Jong-un for being fat, so he's, he's accomplished that much. I mean, at least he's consistent, right? Um, <laughs> but like on that same topic of like Trump maybe dropping the ball with North Korea. I mean, he also has been quite, he, he does the same kind of oscillation between kind and aggressive with Xi Jinping, right? Because he claims he has a great relationship with Xi Jinping, and then he gets in like a incredible trade war with him. And right. It, it just seems like Trump can't find any consistency in East Asia. 
Yes, it appears that he thinks he's a great businessman, and if he builds good personal relationships, he'll be able to do anything with anyone. And this is also problematic because he doesn't really seem to have an ideology. I mean, yes, he tends to lean Republican on a lot of things, and he's done a lot of stuff Republicans like, but the man doesn't really talk about principles very much, and he certainly wasn't a conservative before this. I mean, this was illustrated to me best when he was having an immigration debate that was recorded for some reason, and Dianne Feinstein of California listed all the things the Democrats wanted, and Trump just straight up agreed with her. And then the Republican sitting next to him, Kevin McCarthy, had to explain, no, no, Mr. President, you don't agree with that. You agree with this. And then Trump had to go, oh, yeah, and go back to that. So what would do much better here is some principled American values considering freedom and foreign policy and to apply them consistently to all countries and changing how we, uh, how we act with those countries, not on how friendly Trump thinks he can be with the leader personally, but based on if that country is a tyranny, if that country is an enemy, if that country is an economic power, those variables, not what Trump thinks of the leader. Right. This was this was actually the same problem Roosevelt had with Joseph Stalin, where he thought he could just build a really great relationship with Joseph Stalin and it would solve a lot of diplomatic problems. And it definitely didn't. Um, so. Yeah, I, I just worry that we're repeating a lot of same mistakes here. Um, and yeah. as North Korea attempted find a leader it could draft out of the blue, I think this wasn't the time for those mistakes to be made. Yes. And speaking of drafts and making horrible mistakes, the uh, <laughs> NFL draft is tonight for anyone into football, which should be all uh, Americans. And uh, it, is, it is a very scary time for Dallas Cowboy fans. Uh, a great lesson to learn from the NFL is know what you're good at, and know that being good at that one thing doesn't make you good at everything. Jerry Jones is a great businessman. He has turned owners from millionaires to billionaires. But he is not a GM. He is not a GM. <laughs> and the Dallas Cowboys, not even a great power anymore in the National Football League, have a mere five Super Bowl rings. Had Jerry not been egotistical and had he realized he could not be a GM and hired a GM, we would have... I predict at least four more Super Bowls than we have now. Wait, 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 wait a minute, Jack. Y'all, y'all drafted C.D. Lamb, who is a pretty great wide receiver. I mean, yes, one good piece, and Jerry occasionally gets good ones. But this is the man who fired Jimmy Johnson after he had won two Super Bowls in a row. The man who contemplated hiring Johnny Manziel. The man who hired Wade Phillips. Instead of Sean Payton, look, my grandpa has a saying that even a blind squirrel occasionally finds an acorn. All right, CC Lamb is Jerry Jones' acorn, but that doesn't change the fact that he's a blind squirrel, and most of the time he's going to make severe mistakes that ruin your team, and it's just unacceptable. So the NFL has a slogan for the draft, which is Saturday meets Sunday, saying it's kind of the college football meets NFL day of the year and i'm personally much more on the saturday side of things so i just want to take them take a moment to highlight the fact that lsu has three picks thus far in the first round um we're 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 up to pick number 25 so this hopefully this number will probably go up um and texas a&m and the university of texas combined have zero 
Yes. So go Tigers, folks. <laughs> it's been a rough year for, for Longhorn fans and Aggie fans alike because I betray one to go to the other school. But um, it also, I, you got to feel bad for Joe Burrow. Going from the LSU Tigers to the uh, Cincinnati Bengals, the year Tiger King comes out with Joe Exotic means he will get the nickname Joe the Tiger King. And there's nothing he can do about it. It's settled. It's as if God himself ordained it. And that's just a fact of life. And he has to be, he has to play in Cincy, which he could have been in like New York or Miami, but no, Cincinnati. Well, okay. But to be fair, um, Cincinnati is really close to his hometown. Um, it's true. So it's kind of a really great homecoming story there. And I mean, the man and is quite the quarterback. I mean, very talented. Yes. Yeah. I think, I think, okay. The, the 25th pick just came in and uh, the state of Texas Schools still do not have a single pick. So, yeah. Might be the, like, world capital of high school football, but evidently that recruiting isn't happening, folks. Yes. But, as Texas says every year, we're back. And one year, it may not be in my lifetime, but one year, it's going to be true. And I mean, I'll believe it when they can beat OU twice in one season. That's that's a fair standard to hold them to. That is that is a fair standard. But yes, the uh, maybe win their conference. It, um, let's let's just shoot for like seven wins. Let's <laughs> shoot for seven wins and one win against a ranked team. It's disgraceful. Losing All eligibility is a perfectly fine benchmark, I think, for saying you're back. Right? I mean, six and six is just. Well, anyway, we, how hard the Big Twelve is. I mean, I I can't I can't imagine how hard that must be. We we beat we beat Georgia and we thought that we were going to be okay. I don't know I don't know what happened. It's it's a disaster. It's but we have really cool locker rooms. So there's that. We have locker rooms where instead of just the player's name above the locker, it's a flat screen TV that plays. It's a their highlights. So your tax dollars and tuition are going to uh, great things. And while I'm looking at some of the confetti from the national championship game, uh, I just want to take this opportunity to remind Texas fans that Sam Ellinger is coming back for another season because he was his draft prospect was undrafted, maybe like fourth round in the Canadian Football League draft. So yeah. get excited. Yeah. Well, the the one quarterback that's made something of himself in the NFL is Colt McCoy as a lifelong backup. But uh yeah, it, it's it's been a rough go for us. There's really nothing good to say about UT this past decade. It's uh it's it's abysmal. There's there's nothing. And uh, or the Cowboys either. Such a such a waste of talent. It's really you've you you've just been living in like purgatory. It's it's been terrible. Like before I was born, these these were great powers. It's like living. It's imagine. It's how I imagine living in Greece is now. Like you look around and you see the temples and you see that y'all used to be the West. You ran this thing. You invented democracy. You invented philosophy. And now all you got is a Greek salad. That's all you have now. Basically, Turkey. We've got that in. We've got that in German bailout money, Jack. They have German bailout money, but it's just disgraceful. And you look around and you see all those ruins, and you're like, we used to be great. And that's how it is being in Cowboy Stadium. You see the rings, but then you see Jerry. 
And you know as long as he's there, there's, there's not going to be any more rings. And when you look at UT, you don't even know where to start. There's so many problems. It's like looking at the, the, at the U.S. national debt. You're like, how are we ever going to fix this? This is going to take generations. And it's, it's hopeless. But there is one, one oh. silver lining of hope, and that is that Tom Brady is no longer on the Patriots. It's how I imagine the Soviets felt when Stalin died, being freed at last from a tyranny that seemed infinite, immortal, and unchangeable, like a divine creature that crushed the NFL every year. And we, we, were, we were hopeless as he went to the Super Bowl every year. And there's actually a stat that proves it was more likely Tom Brady would make the Super Bowl than that Steph Curry would make a three-point shot. You let that settle in. This is not human. I don't know what deal he made with Satan, but it is one of the best bargains a human has ever made with the devil that I have ever seen in my life. And still, what are you going to do when him and Gronk go win like three back-to-back Super Bowls in Tampa Bay? So here's the thing: at a certain point, you can't be mad anymore. If a 45-year-old man which is basically in football years, 7,000 years old. He's essentially the same age as Joe Biden when it comes to football. If that man steps onto the field and wins another ring, you can't be mad. You can't criticize him. You just have to recognize that you're in the presence of someone better than you and accept it and just be thankful that you get to see their greatness. It's, it's oh, so it's like, it's like how... Uh... Gorbachev must have felt whenever he had to meet with Reagan, right? Exactly. Like, it's, it's how other countries probably feel talking to us. They're like, thank you that this conversation is not in German. There's no way I could ever challenge you. I'm just going to recognize that and go away. That's exactly how the NFL should feel about Brady. The man has ruled it with an iron fist. It's been absolutely incredible and horrifying to watch. And it's just a miracle that he's not with Belichick. And honestly, it's okay if he wins one because it's Tampa Bay. All right. They're, they're a useless franchise. They've done nothing. The only good thing about them is that they have a pirate ship in their state. And as long as you have less Super Bowls than the Cowboys and you're not the Eagles, I don't care. Right. I mean, first off, um, let's just note that it, they're now calling themselves Tampa Bay. Tampa Bay. <laughs> we also, if you. O-M. I'm not sure if you heard, he's struggling. First, he got caught at a park that was banned for the public <laughs> during COVID. Then he was going to meet one of the coaches. I can't remember which one. This is a true story, though. He confirmed it on Instagram himself. He yep. accidentally walked into the wrong house, and some random dude just got to look up and see Tom Brady in his house, which just amazing. And the most amazing part about all of this is Tom Brady is the greatest NFL quarterback ever, maybe greatest player ever, and he's not even the breadwinner of his home. Like, he, if he was a normal couple, he would be the one who works from home and has, like, a side hobby. Like, his wife brings in the money. Like, he is, he is not the starter in his own household, yet he, he runs the entire league, and it's just insane. Yeah, I just want to be clear. Tom Brady married up. I mean, like, this man... He did. Have you seen how he looked in his draft day pictures? <laughs> yes. When he was drafted in what, the sixth round? I mean, yeah, it's like, uh, I'm, I, <laughs> he's an inspiration to all what, what I mean, he's done. If Tom Brady can go win, how many Super Bowls has he won, Jack? Six. Six. If Tom Brady can go win six Super Bowls after being a late round draft pick. I mean, that, that just gives me a lot of hope for my future, right? You know, like, Maybe, exactly. maybe, 
maybe I am going to be okay, right? Um, yes. Well, folks, thank you for tuning in to This Is News and what became the inaugural episode of This Is Sports. <laughs> uh, Jack, anything you'd like to say to all of our loyal listeners who somehow made it to the end? Just stay healthy and uh, root for the Cowboys. <laughs> Uh, folks thank you so much for tuning in as always be sure to give us a five-star review on whatever platform you're using to listen to us and let us know if you've got any comments you can find us on twitter at this is news pod um, and be sure to drop us a line so thanks as always for listening and we'll be back soon